0: write your senators but also you know leave us a leave us a comment about how much you enjoy the show
1: <laughs> welcome to the episode of center nation my name is brandon sparks
0: and i'm thomas horton
1: and here on center nation we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them and this month we are doing one of our special director months we're breaking down the entire career and filmography of a specific director and this month we're probably tackling one of the most popular famous
0: enigmatic
1: mysterious legendary mythical figure in a way and that is stanley kubrick because july this month is actually his birth month his birthday is the end of the month um and so we're kind of celebrating the work of kubrick we've talked twice before on this podcast really recently within this year uh on two of his films with eyes wide shut and then the killing so we'll kind of Mm -hmm. be going a little bit through both those but still talking about them as much as we can um but you can go back and listen to those episodes too just to kind of get through this month but we're gonna be talking about stanley kubrick and he's a guy who made kind of i mean for a guy who worked for 40 years made a select few films he only made like like Mm. a, a, a dozen movies less than a dozen movies or so so Thomas, when you think of, I guess, Stanley Kubrick, like what's, what's your kind of relationship with Stanley Kubrick on a, on a film-going level? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's a legend. Yeah. Uh, the, probably 2001 and The Shining are the first two things that come to mind when you talk about him. But, but as I've explored him in, in kind of my past history with film, uh you, you come you come to realize like what a varied career he had and and that he was really like in my mind he is the one who we, we've talked so much about like how radical the late 60s were for film and how much they changed the way film was made and that's when you had the film brats come up but he was kind of like he was the bridge he yeah. in in my mind you know he made Spartacus and, and then he made 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like he was he was on both waves. Yeah. And and he was someone who, as we've talked about with with Eyes Wide Shut, continued to kind of capture the imagination of not just film buffs, but the general public mm-hmm. kind of no matter what he made throughout his career, which is yeah. which is so wild. I, I, I truly don't know if we have anybody else like that these days who could just drop anything and people would be like oh my god so and so made this yeah. you know but yeah it been i i wouldn't say i was a fan of his when i was younger i saw spartacus yeah. very young spartacus was for sure my first uh kubrick film but i don't think i knew like who stanley kubrick was uh and then we we had a vhs of 2001 that my parents had bought me once I started showing an interest, like at a yard sale, once Mm. I started showing an interest in film, they were like, I don't know that they had ever seen it. They were just like, I feel like you're supposed to have seen this. And (laughs) you know, at like 12, like attempted to make my way through it and took a couple, took a couple revisits to get through. Uh But yeah, he's, he's, he's someone who I think more than any other filmmaker of his time was just kind of consistently himself. it, It feels like, and, and for better or for worse, according to some of the stories that, that I'm sure we'll hear about him this month. Yeah. But, yeah, someone who just kind of left behind this insanely varied and weird and unique filmography, I think, mm-hmm. more so than, than any other director, which is why he has become this kind of legend.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say Spartacus because that's the that's the one I have not seen yet out of all of his
0: (laughs) filmography that was my first one there you go (laughs)
1: um yeah the thing about him with kubrick is that his legacy has just grown as time has gone on like there's Mm -hmm. always just been there's always like the myths around stanley kubrick of what he did yeah you've
0: got the 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 moon landing and the the shining conspiracy theories and and you know the the hermit era of his life and, and this legendary Tom Cruise Nicole Kidman movie that may have killed him. It's it's yeah. just there. There's I can't think of another like, pop, I mean pop figure. Yeah, somewhat art house, but still very much mainstream. Who has this like just enema- in era to him? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's he's he's such an interesting public figure, and
1: maybe it would argue is possibly one of the greatest american directors of all time is then that's the kind of Mm -hmm. been the i mean it was it was our one of our classes where one of our professors like no no he's one of the best if i'm having to pick in a fight pick the greatest film director of all time i'm picking him to bring to the fight um but yeah he he's someone Well, i find it so fascinating when kind of because his films they're always kind of labeled as as kubrick films and Mm -hmm. but when you look at kubrickian when you when you look at them kind of from the outside and take what take him out of it how the equation what's so fascinating to me is that all of his movies for the most part are genre movies Mm -hmm. if it's a heist movie with the killing if it's a noir film with killer's kiss with the two films talking about today but then if it's 2001 space odyssey which is a sci-fi film or if it's Dr. Strangelove, which is kind of... It's a war comedy, screwball comedy. Or if it's The Shining, which is a haunted house movie. Or if it's Eyes Wide Shut, which is somewhat of a erotic thriller, his version of a rock thriller. They're all... Or Spartacus being epic, or Barry Lyndon with the epic. Like, they're all very much genre movies, but that have his twist to them. And in a way, his genre, his kind of brand uh overpowers the genre and you forget that it's mm-hmm. just a haunted house movie with the shining
0: um mm-hmm. you forget all yeah, it's that a stephen king adaptation yeah you know?
1: it's, it's all these different things but you're like no no but still it's a stanley kubrick film one and then everything else kind of second and um my history with him briefly um the first time i ever watched i believe from stanley kubrick uh can you guess which one thomas i'm gonna see if you can it's not Spartacus.
0: Uh, I'm going to guess that it was Doctor Strangelove.
1: It wasn't. It was The Shining. Oh wow! I, I probably.
0: <laughs> probably way too young.
1: Probably way too young. Um, I, I, if I had to gather, I was somewhere around eight or nine. Mm. Maybe I think eight. If I had to guess, eight or nine. Because I know we're we we're, were in our the first house I lived in. We were in that house when it happened specifically. Because my mom will know this story when she listens to this podcast. I was watching The Shining with my mom, just during the day, lights like mm-hmm. it, it's it's sunlight.
0: That was that was the the my my mom told me at, at a certain point in my like film watching fandom. She was yeah. like, I will watch Silence of the Lambs with you, but. We have to watch it in the middle of the day. We like started at like noon. <laughs> yeah,
1: my yeah, my mom's there. Watched *Silence of the Lambs*. That that was one she's like, I'll never watch. Um, but *The Shining*, yeah, we watched. And what I specifically remember, what's so funny, one of my one of my good like my neighborhood friends were watching the movie. It's the scene when Shelly Duvall's walking up to the uh, the desk and she's seeing... The, all the work that Jack Tarrant has been doing of all work and mm-hmm. no plan makes Jack a dull boy. It's just the countless pages of it over and over again in different type formats, blah, blah. blah. And it's that and the music is swelling. And right when Jack kind of just appears quickly and kind of startles, show you my neighborhood friend rings the doorbell <laughs> on our, at our house. And we just like jump. Um. So I always that memory with this movie. So that's why I know it was the first time I ever watched by him because mm-hmm. it, it, the la- it had a lasting impact and that story always goes with me but since then yeah I, i've discovered him more and like you I, he wasn't a big his movies i think i discovered later in life ever mm-hmm. so slowly in a way like i think
0: i mean they're they're definitely just despite how kind of successful he was as a filmmaker he's you know there there are these film there are these filmmakers that that have kind of gateway movies you yeah, know uh, yeah like i don't know i guess now scorsese has uh has hugo but you know there's people <laughs> like 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 spielberg uh, has et and you yeah. know there there are these filmmakers who make movies uh, yeah. that when you're a kid if you do have an appreciation for film it's like oh you should watch this and that'll get you in to this filmmaker but there's not really like a good jumping in point for no. Kubrick, like
1: They're really yeah that's a good point it's hard i think i think in, mm-hmm. in in every if like say if you're coming into high school it's like maybe probably the shining maybe and then maybe like 2001 or dr strange love but even then mm-hmm. those can be i think i watched dr strange love in, in high school and wasn't that big of a fan of it when i saw it mm-hmm. um so that's what i'm intrigued to kind of come back to it now um So it's like, yeah, it's a hard one to kind of jump into.
0: Yeah, there was always like, I, sometime around like high school or something, there was this kind of like legend of Clockwork Orange and like how depraved it was and like you you should, no one should see it, like that that sort of thing. (laughs) So that was one I was always like trying to get my hands on. But um, yeah, there's there's not one where you say like, oh, this is how you hop into Kubrick, and and that's also you know because his stuff is so is so varied, just because you know, for someone who's not coming as a completionist or, or who's not coming from the lens of all tour theory, like just because you like Dr. Strangelove doesn't mean you're going to like 2001 A Space Odyssey. No. It's, that's just a fact.
1: Yeah. And just because you, you like The Shining doesn't mean you're going to like uh, Lolita or Barry Lyndon or something. It's like they're all mm-hmm. very, they're all different, but all still him. And what I think what I found fascinating is when you research on him, because everyone kind of thinks like, oh, he was meticulous and he did this, he did that. I think a lot of the time it was just he went off of instinct like I think the best example of that there's there's a, a good documentary that his daughter made about the making of the shining and kind of finding on YouTube mm-hmm. there's a scene in that in that 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 documentary where he's trying to decide how to shoot a specific scene he's trying to decide how to shoot Jack Torrance as he's locked in the freezer and mm-hmm. he's shooting he has it play i'm to shoot it this way and the camera's looking at jack like from the side and then all of a sudden he's like oh maybe like uh, i mean i'll just put the camera on the floor and look up at him and they say, like, oh yeah i like this better and it's that kind of unsettling shot of when jack's heads against the door his eyes are looking up and it's mm-hmm. very creepy and you're like he just came with that on the day that wasn't like a I've always wanted to do this shot. This is is the big Mm -hmm. breaking moment. Interesting thing on the day. Oh, this shot looks good. We're going to shoot this. Like he had these amazing instincts and there is a a confidence to him. uh, That's kind of a key word uh, on this episode. There's confidence to him uh, that made him that way. But he was a guy who I think he took a long time to make movies because he he was always like trying to figure out what i'm gonna spend all these years on what movie i'm gonna spend all these years on Mm -hmm. i want to dedicate my life to and i think a lot of times it took so long because he he didn't always know what he wanted but he knew it when he saw it is the thing Mm -hmm. and so that's the thing with him is that i think he had great instincts but he would take his time until he found the right thing for him which will be I think a big thing that will come up with him his entire career and some some people would say it's probably even almost insane of how much he would wait and do things over and over again and so yeah so now I think audiences and people view him I think he he had minor successes financially they weren't like massive big things I think his I said his legacy has grown as the years have gone on is the big Mm -hmm. kind of thing so let's dive into the early beginnings of Stanley Kubrick. So Stanley was born on July 26, 1928 in Manhattan to Jacob and Sadie Kubrick. The Kubricks were a Jewish family that lived in the Bronx at the tail end of the Roaring Twenties. Jack's parents and paternal grandparents were of Polish and Jewish, Polish Jews and Roman Jewish descent, while Sadie was a child of Austrian Jewish descent. Uh, while his parents were married in traditional Jewish c- ceremony, Stanley did not have much of a rel- religious upbringing. His father, Jack, was a homeopathic doctor and a physician that focused on alternative medicine, which mm-hmm. allowed them to be fairly well off, apparently, during his childhood. Stanley's sister, okay. Bar- Barbara, who was born in May of 1934 and still alive, though, at the age of 88, uh, he, she was born a few, uh, six years later. Um, in the documentary Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures, Barbara said that he was a good brother and that she said he was very playful in an Adams Family kind of way. Whatever <laughs> that means. She said that he was seen by people in the as a little odd, always having a book in his hand. His mother constantly read, and it seems that carried down to Stanley. He loved reading Greek and Roman myths and works by the Grimm brothers. He also loved watching the New York Yankees and playing chess, which his dad taught him at the age of 12. In 1941, he began going to William Howard Taft High School, where he was not a good student. A few years before (laughs) it was discovered that he had an above average IQ, but had poor attendance and rarely cared about schoolwork. Uh, He said he was not interested in school, which reflected in his grades, usually receiving C's and D's, and would often skip classes to attend double features as local movie theaters. When he was 13 years old, he became interested in photography after his father bought him a camera. Uh, Kubrick either had a dark room at his home or at a friend's home. Uh, It's kind of uh, different reports of it. Um, But he would spend many hours learning more about photography and the technical aspects of creating a photograph. One of the most active things he did at school was actually being a part of the photography club and the school newspaper, which allowed him to take photos of the school events. One of his biggest influences during his young photography career was. Arthur Felix, who is more known for his nickname Ouija, Ouija was a street photographer in New York who captured crime scene photos in the city and was known for his striking black and white images, realistic images. And Kubrick would later hire him to do some some of the onset photography for Doctor Strangelove years later. Uh, also, just a side thing, Joe Pesci would kind of portray him in a movie called The Public Eye that was loosely inspired by his life, Ouija's life um interesting, it's a good movie um at the age of 16 kubrick would sell his first photograph to look magazine and it was a photo of a sad newspaper man at his stand the day president franklin d roosevelt passed away after graduating high school kubrick had very little hope of attending college due to his poor grades and returning soldiers from world war ii that had flooded college admissions and he found himself without much of a future His father encouraged him to focus more on photography, making it more of a serious hobby than just a thing you do for fun. Kubrick would later sell more photos to Look Magazine, allowing him to be a professional photographer. He would also make money playing chess for for money in Washington Square Park and various (laughs) chess clubs in Manhattan. In 1946, he became an apprentice photographer at Look Magazine before quickly being promoted to a full staff photographer position. One of the other photographers uh, there said that he was quiet and didn't say much. He also believed that he lacked the personality to be a director in Hollywood. Uh, Cooper would spend close to a decade doing these uh, photographic series on a variety of topics, from jazz music, travel pieces, and even just individuals and mundane environments in the city. In 1948, at the age of 19, Stanley would marry his high school sweetheart, Toba Metz, very young age they would live in greenwich village and during stanley's off time he would visit screenings around the city it was during this time that kubrick became interested in boxing because a lot of his photo work for look uh was boxing matches his first one was called the prize fighter in 1949 about boxing walter cartier um in 1951 kubrick would be inspired by his school friend alexander singer to make a short film Kubrick at first wanted to make a narrative short film, but he soon realized it would cost around $40,000 to do so. I think he was looking to do like a, a adaptation of The Iliad or something, like a short version of that. I don't know how that's yeah. going to be possible. Um, <laughs> so his day took uh, $1,500 that he had saved and made a couple of short documentary films, the first of which would be Day of the Fight, about the boxer Walter Cartier that he had done the series on in Look Magazine. Mm-hmm. Walter's brother Vincent... Would say that while filming, Stanley was very stoic, impassive but imaginative type person with strong imaginative thoughts. He commanded respect in a quiet, shy way. Anybody who worked with Stanley did just what Stanley wanted. The day after shooting the documentary's climactic boxing fight, Kubrick quit his job at Look and began focusing his time on being a filmmaker. He learned as much as he could about filmmaking. He stated that he was given the confidence to make the jump because the number of bad films he had been seen of he had seen of late. He stating, I don't know a thing about movies, but I know I make a better film than that. Uh, he would then go on to make money by making short documentaries while also going back to playing chess to raise money uh, to make a feature. Um, which he would finally do when he would make Fear and Desire in 1953 was when it was released. So when it comes to this, there's kind of conflicting reports of how he got the money for this movie. Uh, Kubrick, uh, it said that he he, needed, he had close to $1,000 that he used for the film, but he needed more. So either his father, Jack, cashed in his life insurance policy to help him with funding, or his uncle, uh, who was a pharmacist, invested $9,000 in the film with the intention that he would receive executive producer credit on the film. Either way, uh, it was kind of a, a film funded by Kubrick's family and friends, and that would be Fear and Desire, which is an anti-war film about four men who get trapped behind enemy lines after their plane crashes. Uh, it doesn't actually say what war it's taking place in. It seems like it's, it's it was released in the middle of the Korean War, um, is what it seems like. And what I think is very fascinating about this movie, uh, I don't think it's that good, for one, <laughs> but I, I, I think uh it's a movie it's about anti-war very early on in his career his first movie um and it's kind of about the effects of war mentally on these men who are now trapped behind his enemy lines and it was very rare to see an anti-war film in 1953 it's like Mm -hmm. it's post-world war ii um it's the middle of the korean war like everyone's very patriotic you don't really want to like hate on america and the wars we're fighting and this is very much like no this war has made these like these men to be almost like brutal animals is what it is um so yeah the the film's entire production uh would consist of 15 people and that's both cast and crew wow is what it was <laughs> yeah one of the film stars is actually paul Mazursky, who would later direct such films as Pop- bob and carol and ted and alice Bloom yeah. and love an unmarried woman and down out in Beverly Hills. So he was someone that was involved. Uh, he was an actor early on Paul Mazursky. Uh, but he's one of the men that trapped behind the enemy lines. One of the big, one of the bigger parts. He's the one that I think goes the most insane. Uh, I think by the end of it, he's like muttering to himself, like on a raft down a river is what Paul Mazursky is. Um, the -hmm. film was written by Howard Sackler, who was a high school classmate of Kubrick's and Sackler would later gain fame by writing the hit play, the great white hope in 1967, which resulted in him winning a Tony award and Pulitzer prize. Uh, he would also co-write St. Jack a Pierre Bogdanovich film and do an uncredited rewrite on Jaws, specifically bringing the idea of the famous USS Indianapolis speech from Robert Shaw, but John Milius and Shaw would later rewrite it individually. The film's budget for fear and desire was to be around $10,000 but it would uh, balloon to around fifty-three thousand dollars by the end of it. Uh, Kubrick initially intended for the film to be a silent film, but the additions of sound and music raised the budget. Kubrick would have to be bailed out by documentary filmmaker Richard Day Rochamon, who put uh, who put up the rest of the money. But Kubrick would have to help him make a five-part educational series on Abraham Lincoln to pay off <laughs> the cost uh, of the money of the film. Um, as the film it's not it's very short. it's very much this kind of early like movie you make in film school or something is what it feels like mm-hmm. it's the acting's not that great. Um, but it has some interesting camera angles. He's definitely playing with some some visuals in this movie but as a story it's not not that great. Um, so but the surprisingly the film will receive US distribution by a distributor by the name of Joseph Burst, uh, Burstein – uh, who focused on European art films. Yeah, I think he released mostly uh, um, Rossellini films. Oh, interesting. A fun fact about uh, Burston: he was involved in a landmark Supreme Court case the year before. So Burston was sued by the Commissioner Commissioner of Education in New York for showing the anthology film by Rossellini called L'Amour, uh, which contained a scene that implied sexual assault from a villainous character in the movie. Um and people basically picketed saying it was like the devil and it was sacrilegious and all that stuff. Uh the case would eventually make its way to the US Supreme Court where Burston stated that the film the film should fall under the protection of the 1st Amendment, which it wasn't at the time. The Supreme Court would rule in favor of him in a unanimous decision deeming the censorship of the film to be a restraint on freedom of speech. It would be the first crack in the armor of the production code that was ruling Hollywood movies, and it was marked as a landmark moment in the decline of film censorship in America. But sadly, Fear and Desire would be the last film Burstein produced or distributed before passing away of coronary thrombosis on a plane to Rome at the age of 52. Oh, man.
0: Yeah. Going to the Supreme Court can be pretty stressful as well. That's probably not great for your heart
1: yeah so yeah a year later is so 52 was the supreme court case he'd pass away i think november of 53 is what it was fear and desire would be released in new york city on march 31st 1953 with the tagline trapped four desperate men and a strange half animal girl yeah so apparently at one of the points in the movie they uh a, a young kind of girl Uh, some young women are kind of like out in the kind of in like on the river and like I was washing clothes or something and one of the girls kind of wanders off and the men kind of kidnap uh uh her it's not a great scene looking at context now um but that was why it has a strange half animal girl she's really just like (laughs) she's just like foreign is what it is that's how like she's they just she she doesn't understand them because they're speaking english is why and they're like oh Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense yeah oh yeah she's um and the film surprisingly was not a box office success it i guess received okay critical notices from the very people that did see it the new york times said if fear and desire is uneven and sometimes reveals an uh, experimental rather than polished exterior its overall effect is entirely worth its sincere effort that was put into it worth the sincere effort that's put into it um but not long after the film's release the film would mostly disappear Due to Burstyn's death and his company shutting down, and also Kubrick not liking the final movie, um, it would hmm. slip into public. Do dom- it. Yeah, it would slip into public domain not long after, uh, and the legend is that Kubrick destroyed the film's original negative, and tried to destroy all the copies that were put in distribution. Uh, it the film received its first retrospective showing uh, forty years later in 1993 at the Telluride Film Festival and soon after more showings would pop up around the country, Kubrick would release a statement claiming it to be a bumbling amateur film exercise, hoping no one would go see it. <laughs> um, but even with all that, it proved Kubrick could make a feature film. He would receive another director-for-hire job for a documentary called The Seafarers, and with that, and the small clout he had of making that first movie, he would be able to make his next film, Killer's Kiss. And so, Thomas, what is, what is Killer's Kiss about if you can describe Killer's it. Killer's
0: Kiss you know is, is very run of the mill noir uh, yeah. plot and I do have to say uh, and it's-, <laughs> it's, a, it's a main character is a, a boxer kind of on his way out he's was someone that, that a lot of people recognize could have been great but never really lived up to his potential and might be quitting sometime soon and he there's a, a, a woman who lives kind of across the he lives in one of those he lives in one of those buildings only New York yeah. has where you're looking directly into somebody else's window.
1: Yeah. And very cl- the They're very close the, for, for an apartment yeah. in New York.
0: Yes. And the woman in the window, not the movie The Woman in the Window, which is a <laughs> film noir, but the woman in the window in this film uh lives across from him and they've kind of never really met but but glance at each other. And and she is a dancer. At, yeah. a, at a dance hall where you can yeah. you can pay to dance with women yeah it's is called that, is that what and, and sweet that, charity uh, sweet charity sweet charity right yeah. that's what she yeah. does in sweet charity it's, it's yeah? called
1: it's called a taxi dancer is what it's called where basically what you do mm-hmm. is you men for the most part would pay for tickets to basically dance with a woman who is a hired dancer not it's not a strip mm-hmm. club but it's like basically you buy a ticket and then you pay for a dance and this person like slow dance the year or whatever for like the entirety of song or whatever right um yeah.
0: and it's not a brothel or at least it's, it's brothel. not supposed to be
1: yeah and um, it, it, it gives you hints of it because of their their employer uh frank mm-hmm. silveira who plays the 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 kind of he's not a pimp but he could be a pimp is kind of the thing What it comes off as um but yeah
0: so yeah so she he her her boss is kind of in love with her and she ends up rebuffing him and falling in love with the boxer across the, across the hall. And so then the boss decides he's going to kill the boxer and take her back. And it, and it turns into a, a night of, of night of violence, but um, yeah, not n- nothing too complicated going on here. No. Plot or dialogue wise, but very well shot.
1: Yes. Yeah. I tell people to watch the movie just because it's, it's one of the, I think one of the most stunning like New York movies of this era, like the black and white film them- uh, cinematography is just like, so striking, like the times mm-hmm. square stuff. Um,
0: the, just the, the handheld sh- boxing stuff. Yeah. Is, the is handheld boxing wild. stuff is
1: amazing. And like, again, for like, it's what, what I find so fun or, or interesting and almost like uh, fascinating. He makes fear and desire in 53 and it's not that good. This comes out in, I think, 55 is what it is. Mm-hmm. And 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 not jump ahead, but then he does The Killing and he does Pads of Glory in a matter of four years. Like he goes from mm. Fear and Desire 53, Killer's Kiss 55, The Killing 56, Pads of Glory 57. Just how fast he improves from film to film is just yeah. insane. Yeah like in such a short amount of time, but like the visuals, yeah, the visuals are stunning in this movie. Um, and it was kind of like, it's a time capsule of the era, Cause like the Penn, the, the Penn station sequence, or he, the, cause there's a character, the boxers of the Penn station, uh, the old Penn station, in New York. And I think it would be torn down within like eight years after this movie. So it's kind of like one of the last filmed versions of this specific uh, uh, location and it's very much Mm. time capsule for the era of new york at this time um so originally titled uh, kiss me kill me the film was also financed by Kubrick's family and friends because but because fear and desire uh failed to make a profit this time the 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 uncle that was a pharmacist didn't help out with the film's financing so he found another pharmacist to do it apparently that's where he (laughs) got all the money back then was pharmacist pharmacist
0: i guess so um
1: when Kubrick began shooting the movie, he fired the sound recorder after he became frustrated with the intrusion of the microphone and his lighting schemes. So instead of shooting the film with sound on set, which is the common thing to do, Kubrick shot the film without sound and added it all in post so the visuals were not hindered due to the sound equipment on set.
0: I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because it is <laughs> lit very harshly from like yes. directly above for a lot of the film.
1: Yeah. 'Cause he's just like, Why is why is this shadow that I don't want in my shot? Oh, you're the boom guy? Get okay, out, I don't need you. I'm gonna do this later. <laughs> Let me just get the shots down. Um, he would shoot the movie, he would spend shoot he would spend time shooting the movie for twelve to fourteen weeks, apparently, which is insane for like an indie movie of yeah. this nature. Uh he would spend months and thirty five thousand dollars just to do the film sound after he finished wow. shooting the movie uh also because of the sound mishap actress irene kane who plays the dancer gloria is not a, it's not the voice in the film she apparently did not like the looping process or adr which is where you record your dialogue and they had to hire a radio actress by the name of peggy uh, uh loben to record all of uh kane's dialogue so it's not even her voice in the film apparently according to i think AFI aficatalog.com so american film hmm. institute tells me that um also at this time Kubrick would marry his second wife uh ballerina Ruth uh Zabotka uh she would also serve as the film's art director uh also Howard Sackler who helped write who wrote Fear and Desire would also help write the script for for Killer's Kiss and Stanley's other high school friend Alexander Singer would do on-set photography for the film's production hoping to catch or capture Kubrick learning how to make a film as he was making it um
0: well and that is that his did i see that's his wife doing the, the ballerina stuff the ballet scene yeah the ballet okay, scene yeah. yes
1: that's her um and speaking of that to go with that what i find fascinating movie going with that type of like kind of flashback in a way he's already kind of playing with non-linear structure in this mm-hmm. movie it's like you have the whole the penn station sequence is kind of the frame narrative but then you have like mm-hmm a scene happens and then she's like oh let me tell you what happened last night and then we flash back to what happened last night or yeah. it's oh let me tell you about how i used to be in ballet and i was a ballerina and that's the cut to uh a woman doing ballet or whatever it's just very unique yeah. of how he does it
0: yeah it's all yeah. rough he's like the way he he sees her screaming he rushes to help her and then he's like hey why were you screaming and then she goes let me tell you and then yeah <laughs> jumps back an hour
1: yeah, <laughs> and she wasn't like walking in but yeah it's like the, the it's it's a rough movie but it's like it's an interesting film i think in terms of like the technical side of it for like a young filmmaker because again you gotta realize this is 55 so he is like 26 or so i think right he'd be uh he would be 26, 26. He's in this kind of period of like, he's like every, I feel like every movie that he makes, everyone's like, Oh yeah. He's like 27. He's like 27 for like three straight movies. It feels like in terms of the <laughs> eyes of like all these actors. Um, but yeah, but one, of the big sequences is kind of the film's finale. And that's the mannequin sequence. When mm-hmm. the boxer is getting to like a kind of a, a fight, a violent fight with, uh, the dancers boss, and it's this big kind of like mannequin warehouse and they're just like destroying all these mannequins basically uh that apparently destroyed fifteen thousand dollars worth of mannequins which at that point if that was today that means they would have destroyed 160 thousand dollars worth of mannequins i'm
0: i'm so curious about that scene like was that court it's it feels kind of improv it does but then the that's that's like a real axe that guy's swinging because yes. a couple of times they throw a mannequin leg at him and he like it chops, it, chops out, it out of the air
1: it's it's a i mean you know at this point in 55 like and he's doing indie film he's like let's not think about safety let's just like oh yeah you can you yeah. won't just don't cut him just don't hurt him we'll be good
0: um yeah, they're like tackling each other it's it's wild the whole time wild. i was watching it, i was like well and then and, and there's that the there's one scene when they're up and they're all running across the roof roofs and yeah like and like one guy fall, the, the, the boss falls at one point. I'm like, that can't have been planned. And then the, the other guy falls and I feel I'm like, all right, that feels like a reason to get him out of this scene. But when the yeah. boss like falls, I'm like that, I feel like that guy, that poor guy is just like, he is too old to be running across these rooftops right now.
1: Yeah. They, uh, it, it, it wouldn't be surprising to say that they stole almost all these shots in this movie, by not doing not putting a tripod down ever so everything was like handheld or a like would hold the mm-hmm. camera uh when he was doing shots like account kind of on the main streets or whatever he'd sit in the back of a pickup truck and they'd drive by as he like filmed <laughs> characters uh because they didn't have money for permits and there's that weird that weird like infrared sequence that you know what i'm talking about like yeah, dream. His, his like
0: nightmare thing it's
1: yeah. it's really again it's really interesting what he's doing visually for this movie and that's why it's like again story not that great very run-of-the-mill noir film but just mm-hmm. the visuals are just insane uh yeah. at this moment in time
0: yeah it's 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 really one of those things where you're like um you know you can see him changing the way yes f- movies are shot as as it's going there, there will be some of these shots and you're like matt i could see that in any film noir and then he cuts to some angle or he's got some shot lit this way and you're like that nothing looked like that at this period in time
1: yeah exactly you're really seeing him just like take that stuff he he did from photography and look magazine and now putting it into filmmaking
0: yeah yeah i i the the only other thing the only other shot that like really blew me away is the way they do the sorry spoilers for killer's kiss people (laughs) the way they shoot the um the killing of his his manager it's just that, yeah. that huge wide of that alley oh, and God, it's almost all played out in shadow
1: yeah i use that i think i used that for last year or two maybe a year or two ago when we did like a like a, a tiktok or whatever on like film noir or whatever mm-hmm. and that's just a great show like this bet this massive canvas and it's just three shadows and almost and there was like no dialogue i believe i think it's just like mm-hmm him like hands out sh- big shot. it's it's gorgeous it's gorgeous um so on july 27th 1955 a day after kubrick's 27th birthday killer's kiss would be picked up for distribution by united artists it seems that united artists had been keeping tabs on kubrick since his early documentary shorts and fear and desire and they want him to partner with united artists very early so they saw buying killer's kiss as an investment in stanley's talents Helping him get even with the film's finance or the film's investors, but United Artists would then want some changes to the film. It seemed the film originally ended with a more cynical and depressing ending. Uh, the executives wanted a happier ending, so Kubrick would unhap unhappily shoot several endings for the film. Um, actress Irene Kane would later comment to her sister, saying that she had no clue how the movie would end because they because the amount of endings they shot. Uh, it's funny because I think it's the, it's, it might be the one Kubrick film that ends on a happy ending. Yeah. Like, I think I remember talking to his assistant, Leon Vitale. I was like, this is the only film that ends with like somewhat of a good ending for the characters. Like every other movie is just (laughs) like depressing. People died, uh, or they didn't change. They didn't learn their lesson. Um, or it's like eyes wide shut and you're questioning everything. Um, yeah, but yeah, the film would finally release in New York city on September 21st, 1955. Critics, uh, reviews from critics were mixed, uh, but Kubrick was beginning to kind of garner some form of attention while critics felt the story to be typical. The visuals weren't variety said that his scenes are his scenes of tawdry Broadway gloomy tenements and grotesque brick and stone structures that make up Manhattan's downtown east side loft district offsets the scripts deficiencies. Uh, killer's kiss is a more respected film from the young kubrick with scorsese even saying that it was visual inspiration for his 1980 classic raging bull
0: but oh absolutely yeah uh, was th- those boxing sequences
1: like, yeah yeah i think with raging bull it's like this in the movie the setup with the uh, um mm-hmm. uh with robert ryan what both are just like feel like he's like cool i'm gonna do these type movies for for raging bull um, but the most important thing that came out of Killer's Kiss was Stanley meeting producer James B. Harris. Uh, we talked about this during our heist month when we covered the killing, but Kubrick had met Harris a, a few years earlier through his mutual, through their mutual friend Alexander Singer. Harris was impressed by Stanley making a film, saying that most people only say they will, and very few actually do. Harris would agree to partner with the, the, the Harris and Cooper would agree to partner with one another, hoping to find a project to bring to unite artists. Since they were told they would produce anything Stanley brought them, okay, uh, th- th- that wasn't fully true. Um, Harris would go. <laughs> Harris would go. They're like, we have an open door policy. Come on in. Give us whatever idea you have. Um, Harris would then go to a local New York bookstore, searching for a book that could possibly adapt. Uh, he found a book titled Clean Break, written by Lionel White. Uh, and it was about a group of men who decided to rob a racetrack and this would eventually become The Killing. Um, and as The Killing became a possibility, Harris and Kubrick would form a production company together called the Harris Kubrick Pictures Corporation. Um, mm. And what is The Killing about, Thomas?
0: Yeah, The Killing's about, a, the we're, we're kind of dropped right into this racetrack heist that is yeah. about to go down. It's It's yeah. really just kind of like, hey all the plan it's not really one of those like building the team no. movies it's like the team's been built we're getting ready to go but um but yeah the the, uh, the kind of our main character we've come to find out is recently released from prison and it's kind of, this is his like one job to to yeah. set himself back on track and, and get out and this supporting group of guys from people who work at the racetrack to a cop who's in debt and and it's one of those movies that's like we have everything planned to a T. What could possibly go wrong? And so then you proceed to watch it all go wrong.
1: Go wrong. Yeah, it's 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 a very like again talking about like noir. He takes his genre like noir noir and still kind of makes it his own in some way. Um, like I love the variety of characters is is so much fun to me uh mm-hmm. and the way again that nonlinear structure comes into play again he starts off killer's kiss and then just goes like let's amp it up to 11 almost in the killing where it's like so many things are happening at once um so finally you catch up and you find what's going on with this heist mm-hmm. um but yeah so when it came to kind of this the script of it kerbic was a, a fan of a particular, a particular author by the name of Jim Thompson who had written the influential novel The Killer Inside Me. And soon it seems like uh, Kubrick and Harris would contact him about helping write the script and Thompson would help contribute dialogue for the film. Um, the film would have trouble getting funding from United Artists, which is surprising since they were told they would make whatever they wanted. Uh, but they said they would make it as long as they had like a property first then a script and then a star. And then they would, mm-hmm. they would, put, they would agree to put up money for it. Um, but they only agreed to put up $200,000 for the film when they believe they needed uh, at least $300,000 to make it. So Harris would put up $80,000 of his money and get his dad to put up another $50,000 of his money. They United Artists did not want to match that and, and do 300000 because they did not believe the movie would bring back enough money of its cost due to Sterling Hayden in the lead. Uh, United Artists wanted Victor Mature to be in it, but Kubrick and Harris fought for Hayden in the lead role. Um when talking about working for Kubrick, Hayden would say he was cold and detached, very mechanical, always confident. I've worked with I've worked with few directors who are that good. Uh, actress uh, Marie Windsor would describe Kubrick and Harris as looking almost like kids because they were so young. Uh, but like Hayden, she said that Stanley had tremendous confidence as a director. One of the reasons she said that was because of how he dealt with the film's director of photography, Lucien Ballard. Now, I think we recently talked about Lucien Ballard on... Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, which is years yes. later with this. Who
0: also shot True Grit that same year. That same, that same year. year.
1: So at this point, Ballard had, had been in the industry like for almost 25, 30 years. And Kubrick was still this young kid. Uh, and so at the very beginning of production, Kubrick set up this long, complex dolly shot. And uh, he set up and told Ballard, hey, this is what, what lens I want to use this is the shot I like to do. And a few moments later, Stanley saw that the die track had been moved back and camera lens had been changed. When he asked Ballard what he was doing, he said he was pushing it back and changing the lens to make his job easier and help them get through the shot faster. Kubrick asked him, but doesn't this change the perspective of the shot? And Ballard responded that the perspective doesn't really matter. <laughs> and Kubrick would then tell him to put it back the way he had it or leave set and never come back. So yeah, brief history on, on, on that onset stuff. So what's kind of, what's some of your favorite scenes in this movie?
0: Well, first off, scenes aside there there are so many amazing dolly shots in this movie
1: speaking of the dolly shot right there
0: (laughs) if killer's kiss is defined by like all the handheld work this movie is is defined by all these insane dolly shots that go through like multiple rooms yeah yep the the sets on this on this are wild um favorite scenes well first off any scene with timothy Carey in it is (laughs) is a favorite scene he's such an odd character (laughs) his introduction with the puppy yeah he's just like who you want me to kill i can kill a horse um (laughs) just such a he is he is a fascinating so many people in this movie are fascinating because sterling hayden is also just like a fascinating person his life was insane but um timothy Carey was was just this like so many people tried to work with him and just hated him. It's kind of now come that back Kubrick into play in the next
1: movie, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, Elliot Kazan, I know, like cast him in something and then like fired him because he yeah. was just like, I can't do it. But, yeah, it's a great, great little cast of like weird character actors yeah. in this movie.
1: So basically, to go off that Kubrick, because Harris talked about this in the Criterion. He was like, that's where you really knew how many movies that Kubrick had seen was because he pulled so much from noir films and the westerns that he loved so when you look mm-hmm. at this movie it's just like well uh the actress who plays uh Hayden's um girlfriend Colleen Gray was in the original Nightmare Alley or Marie Windsor was in Narrow Margin or Elijah Cook Jr. was in the Maltese Falcon so he's just like picking people from small character actors who were in all these different movies or like mm-hmm. the guy who's the, the rest or the wrestler chess player, the chess player or whatever. That's actually yeah. like a duty played chess within Washington square. Like that wasn't even an actor. He was just a wrestler is what it was. I, I
0: could, I could make that I could, call that one. <laughs> I could make yeah, like, that.
1: But it's like, uh, the, the guy who plays like a James Edward, who Edwards, who plays like the, tr- the, the parking attendant, that Carrie gets into like the, the, the conversation with or whatever was in like, uh, I think Sergeant Rutledge, maybe. No, I'm sorry. It was, he, was in, um, he was in The Steel Helmet, a, a kind of a war film a, a few years before or whatever. And he was also in The Setup, with, which we just talked about, the, with Robert mm-hmm. Ryan. So he was definitely – he just knew who the character actors were who were in these smaller B-movies. and He just would hire – he hired them for the killing. So all of them are interesting in some way.
0: But yeah, you know, it's not necessarily a favorite scene, but I feel like when you talk about this movie, you just have to bring up the way the heist goes down yeah, because we just see it happen from everyone has a job and we kind of get that job. It's not really laid out for us, but we get an idea of why each person has been has been brought into this. But then we see each of their jobs play out separately and then and then back up and and watch it happen again. So there's I feel like no one else would have had that idea to shoot this movie in that way. Normally you would be like, all right, this person does this. And then this person does this. But instead we're getting, here's what, here's how this person set it up in the morning. Here's how they got to the track. Here's how they got ready to do their job. And then they did their job. And then let's go back to this morning and see what this other guy was doing.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I thought it was on the last episode. I don't particularly like the, the docudrama narration they have to it i think it dates the movie mm-hmm. what are your thoughts
0: um i think it's fine uh, yeah i don't i don't love it but i i mean would you you, you just wouldn't have it you'd have like a timestamp. that's the, that's the thing then...
1: I, I wonder if it's timestamp stamp because it's I, I know you i know it's there because they're like i think people are because i don't think kubrick liked it either but i think people are afraid like oh they don't understand what's going on mm-hmm. um but i feel like you can find a better way to like bring them in it just feels too much like dragnet or like some like are
0: like the it, d- it definitely feels like dragnet for yeah. sure yeah
1: and you're just like and then johnny clay on this day at 2 at two <laughs> fifty five p.m johnny clay takes it takes a uh, samaka boulevard down to this place and you're just like why don't you yeah. know this
0: <laughs> he knew he only had 10 minutes to get to the track yeah he timed it's, it perfectly
1: he timed, yeah it's like i don't need to know this. it's all his thoughts i don't need this um but yeah the and the movie for like with all that's going on the pace is fantastic it moves so well is mm-hmm. the thing um and it's like scenes i love i mean I, I, hayden's great throughout most of it like it's again i love the kind of the way he shoots the setup and everything and when clay's telling you you're like okay we're you're coming and doing this you're doing that um but i do love just like the end just to jump fully ahead i love the ending of the movie <laughs> like the, the whole the, the kind of amazing shot of all the the money going up into the air after the bags mm-hmm. after the bags opened up and it's just kind of like all of his hopes and dreams like he's almost gotten away he is the last man standing and then it's just yeah. like damn that's
0: yeah. it the, the, i think i feel like the the original oceans 11 definitely borrowed yep their <laughs> ending from from this yeah. film
1: uh very much so and I, I think this is one i talked about like, it feels very much like very like early reservoir dogs in a way with how I do it. And I think even mm-hmm. Tarantino wanted to cast Timothy Carey in reservoir dogs, but didn't or something. Mm-hmm. He did, um, yeah. and that, and it's also kind of like Chris Nolan esque in a way, like just the, the high, like, some of the high stuff with it. Like it's just like there's, and the non linear structure to it as well is very mm-hmm. Nolan because to Nolan's all about playing with time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, the 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 cast is great. Elijah Cook Jr. I love as the kind of just like meek man who ends up being cheated on by his by his by his wife. Um yeah. but yeah, just a ph- phenomenal kind of cast. And again, to go from Killer's Kiss to this in one year, like visually and storytelling wise, it's it's a feat. Yeah.
0: From a yeah, from especially from a storytelling point of view, he's yeah. he's juggling so like Killer's Kiss is such a simplistic story. It's like a it's like a love triangle, gone violent, you know. And this is like there's so much going on here, and and it's it's a it's a short film, you yeah, know. It's it's a very it fast film in the way that it all goes down. But I feel like you get all the information you need. Uh, and and he he is great at a heist film is so hard to pull off because it's like what information do you get somebody what do you hold back and I, I feel like everything just runs perfectly in this one yeah and like i said it, it's it's not one of those i i feel like last time we said those are more like capers but it's not one like like the new oceans 11 where it's like they pulled it off you just watched it get pulled off and now we're going to tell you how they did it How did, yeah this one is like we're going to tell you how we're going to do it but they're not going to pull it <laughs> yeah. here. It it's not all going to work out.
1: Yeah. It's, it's the idea of chance always comes into play with this. Like that thing is that it's all mm-hmm. about chance is that he gets away, but by just happenstance, he gets the, he puts the money in the suitcase. It's kind of broken. And that, that suitcase falls off and everything goes to shit for him at the very mm-hmm. end when he's almost out the door. Um, one thing I found interesting too, I don't know if this is the first time I've done this, but it, Like having characters rob an event feels very like fresh for this period of time, for Mm -hmm. like a heist movie. It's like, I mean, they
0: keep saying in the movie, they're like, nobody's nobody robs a a racetrack. (laughs) Like you're crazy.
1: And now it's like, I feel like if you're doing a heist movie, you have to do like some sort of event. It's like, oh, we're robbing. Mm -hmm. We're robbing the casino on Boxing Night, which is Ocean's Eleven. Or it's like, it's lucky. We're robbing the NASCAR race or something. Like, there's always, like, an event mm-hmm. here now. Or it's, even if it's, like, the town, we're robbing the or we're robbing the Red Sox or Fenway Park after the big game. Like, you're robbing right. this big big place or big event. And this is just, like, we're gonna, but back then, this is kind of new is what it feels like. Mm-hmm.
0: There, there's definitely something in in Killer's Kiss to watch there, especially the, the yeah. lighting and the and the handheld. Like we were saying, it, it he he's not just emulating the way that people no. shot movies at the time. He obviously has a different eye than than others do, and he and for the 50s, he is like pushing filmmaking forward for mm-hmm. sure. But this is the one when his storytelling shines through, yeah, for sure.
1: This is when I think he becomes he becomes a mature filmmaker. I think mm-hmm. in this one.
0: And it's just wild that he can go from that to this yeah. and then to his next film, which is like, sorry, showing my hand of masterpiece. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. From 20, like from basically 27 to 28 or something like that. Like he just does these three movies. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. insane. So, yeah, so we talked about this the last time we covered this film, but once they finished shooting it, Kubrick and Harris, got cold feet about the story's uh, non-linear structure after a failed test screening. uh, And after I think Sterling Hayden's agent was like, you've ruined my client's career. Uh, (laughs) And even Hayden thought it hurt his performance. So Harrison and Kubrick re-edited the movie to make it more of a straightforward narrative. But they soon realized they hated it, and they're like, "Let's go back to what we did. This is what we did this movie for this nonlinear thing, because that's the way it's in the book. Let's keep it. Let's go with it." Um, And then when it came to the release of the movie, it seems like United Artists botched the release. Uh, It apparently just sat there, according to James B. Harris. Then one day, they received a call from United Artists, and they were told that they had released, or that they were releasing a movie, and or they had released a movie in some massive theater in broad on Broadway in New York. And it was underperforming greatly and they needed a replacement movie. So United artists quickly released the film in hope in hopes of it getting some more money back. All right. So United artists would quickly release the movie in hopes of getting their money back. Harris said they realized it needed to start in smaller venues because it was a small low budget com or low budget crime movie. Uh, they needed a mm-hmm. proper marketing campaign and word of mouth, but the film would essentially go to this big cavernous Broadway theater on New York and just die basically it was a financial disappointment but it was a critical success the best review would come from time magazine saying at 27 years old writer director sam kubrick in his third full-length picture has shown more audacity with dialogue and camera than hollywood has seen since orson welles
0: Mm -hmm.
1: pretty pretty big yeah pretty big statement
0: you know that's that's the thing when you really study filmmaking at that time like we we can talk about uh you know we can talk about a lot of these these other directors at the time that were bringing very interesting viewpoints to film yeah. but you still kind of shot everything the same, same way <laughs> unless you <laughs> were kind of unless you were film noir yeah. where yeah. you had your german expressionism but then even that became established yeah. you know once once the german expressionism style kind of took over that became the way that you shot those movies yeah and and so yeah it really is just kind of radical the, the the style that he brings in and and like we've been saying once the 60s came along everyone had their own vision they wanted to put a stamp on on things and shoot it all their own way but but for for this period you just didn't really see movies They look that different and especially not like we were saying especially not genre movies
1: yeah when you talk about you said earlier about how Kubrick's kind of the bridge between the old ways and the new it's a good point because I think about like think about because you have at this point mid 50s late 50s those film brats the Scorsese the Spielberg the Coppola Coppola, even the Zemeckis they're all Mm -hmm. growing up at this point and they're all young teenagers or whatever at this moment in time going to see these movies and it's like it's kind of like it's we always always joke sometimes like it's like the film school kids favorite filmmaker that no one talks about in a way it's like oh i love Mm -hmm. this person or whatever it feels kind of like he's that guy that like the film people are like yo who is this person and you're like i want to see where he goes and then you're like cool i'm gonna i like his stuff the most he's this kind of new refreshing take and yeah that's what it is i mean even
0: yeah you don't you don't make a boxing movie without referencing i mean a lot of people now don't make a boxing movie without referencing raging bull Bull. but that goes back to killer's kiss like you don't you can't make you cannot make a sci-fi movie without referencing 2001 like it's it's he's he's setting these these genre templates every time he does something. Almost. And I would
1: say too, like, I feel like you can't, you're not making, like, I think when you're making a Stephen King movie, no matter what, it's going to be brought Shining's going to get brought up in that conversation. Uh, yeah. Yeah, later. absolutely. Um, but he's always pushing, he's always pushing things forward in some way. And maybe not as noticed at, at first, but you, you look at it later. You're like, Oh yeah, this ma- this tracks of what's happening in the industry and what he's kind of making and what he's kind of doing is a little offshoot of that. Um, mm-hmm. The film, however, would be placed on several critics' top ten movies of the year, and one of the people that saw the film was Dor Sherry, an executive at MGM. He liked the film and reached out to Stanley and James Harris about making a movie uh, for MGM, and and had them they wanted he won the pick something from their like development pool their shlu- their slush pipe as I think he called it of like all their <laughs> stuff they had that wasn't being that wasn't being pushed forward so they didn't do anything. Well, Harris and Kubrick looked at looked them over and didn't find anything they liked. So Stanley soon remembered a book he had read during his teenage years. Don't know how he remembered this, called <laughs> Pads of Glory from Humphrey Cobb, and it was released in 1935 and it was inspired by an incident, a true a true a true event that occurred during World War 2 and or World War 1 in the French army. So what is Pads of Glory about, Thomas?
0: Pass of Glory is about yeah the French army in World War One. There, there, this these troops are ordered to take this hill that is everyone knows is impossible to take. Yeah, and upon failure of their upon their failed attempt to to take this hill, the the general in charge kind of decides he he has to save face and he's going to charge all of the troops involved with cowardice and he wants at first he says he wants to execute. 100 men from each uh, unit and then they they are able to talk him down to three men from each unit are chosen quote unquote at random and are court martialed to stand trial for cowardice and Mm. the uh, the lieutenant in charge of this operation played by Kirk Douglas just so happened to be a criminal defense lawyer before being drafted into the the army so he decides he's going to kind of defend these men in this during this court martial procedure and try and, and save them because he he knows that it wasn't cowardice it was you know yeah. a failed attempt yeah from the start
1: yeah it, it was it was a suicide mission basically is yeah. what it was it was and it's pretty much said pretty early when douglas meets with the general uh general moreau who is basically this megalomaniac mm-hmm. who's like it's 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 like I, it was funny i was reading some comments about it and it was like it's pretty much like it's a war film about middle management in a way because like yeah. it's a character he's like he goes I'm gonna show you guys i'm like my my company is the the best or whatever i'm gonna make sure i do this but like he's not on the battlefield
0: <laughs> no well i mean you, you know the, the opening scene is out he he's there they say you know we want you to take the anthill and he's like that can't be done and they're like if you take the anthill we'll make you a four-star general or whatever the yeah. next promotion is and he's like Okay, I'm on it. Let's go. Like yeah. he he knew that it couldn't be done, but then he just got so caught up in in this idea of a promotion that that he got way too deep into it.
1: There is some cynicism in Kubrick's stuff before this movie, mm-hmm. but it really comes through in this film. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's fully fully there. This
0: is one of the great like righteous indignation movies. Yeah, like Douglas is 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 you know. To, to watch his kind because of, he he is a he's a company man at the yeah. beginning you know yeah. and, and and you just watch him realize how unjust the system he's in is
1: So real quick before we kind of go into favorite scenes about it. so due to the, the book's anti-war sentiments it was actually a minor success when it was released in 1935. Uh, Cobb would later turn it into a play but that was a flop and he hoped that it would be turned into a movie because he thought like it could be a good kind of movie uh, a Hollywood film uh Kubrick mm. and Harris would then purchase the rights of the book and Stanley would begin writing a script for the film Jim Thompson who helped with the killing returned to write some scenes for the film and they also hired writer Calder Willingham who also helped write it but there would be later kind of differing accounts of how much everyone wrote but they also have some contribution to the script MGM was hesitant to make the movie because of its subject matter uh because it, they felt that it would hurt their European markets whenever they released the film. Uh, they also, also every student Hollywood had turned it down before that, turned the book down before that. And they thought there was no point in doing it soon after kind of their advocate at MGM uh, Dor Sherry, who bought, the, who brought them over uh, was fired. And the momentum that pads Ooh. of Glories had Cl- pads of glory had would quickly disappear, but it would pop back up soon after when Kirk Douglas got wind of the script and read it, uh, after reading it, he would agree to make the movie, which allowed for the film to get a $1 million advance from United Artists. And Douglas would also agree to serve as a producer to help get the movie made. Uh, he was also very adamant because I think one of the the script or whatever, or I may change it later, but the original ending was a, was a more hopeful, happy ending. And Douglas <laughs> was like, no, 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 no. no go back to what's in the book go back to what actually happened um and that's where you get kind of the really kind of heartbreaking uh uh ending mm-hmm. so yeah so what's some of your favorite scenes in pads of Glory, thomas
0: i mean i think this is this is one of the great courtroom scenes of yeah. of you know one of the great closing statements within within courtroom dramas and it's and yeah. it is a war film and and on the court martial really only takes up about you know thirty minutes out of the the entire runtime because you do get a pretty pretty long setup of, of this of these characters and of this uh, assignment and the process of trying to take the 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 anthill. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that 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 closing argument scene, Douglas is just amazing. The when he confronts the general or the, the whatever the commander at the end, I'm not your boy. That's when he's
1: fully realized what this what this has come to. Because like, I mean, mm-hmm. the thing too is that like, and it's also like he he misread everyone around him and everyone else misread him as well. Mm-hmm. It's like the the major general. It's just like, oh yeah, like I thought you did this so you could get a promotion. He's like, I could give a shit about the promotion.
0: Yeah, I, was I was trying, was trying to, to, these men's these, to save these lives.
1: He saved these three men's lives. Like, he goes like, oh wow, I pity you because you're so such a like hopeful human being <laughs> he's like mm-hmm. it's it's yeah but no that both, both those scenes are great the the courtroom stuff is great i mean timothy carey gives a very odd performance in that courtroom scene like there is like a smugness to him yes sir and he's kind of like smiling i was like dude you're on trial for your life man what are you doing um
0: but awesome. it, and and it, it, like you were saying the kind of middle management it is sub- yes. that whole scene it's almost you know it's almost like the trial like the the, um in the way that they're like because these three men have been picked at random and they're and like they're literally scapegoats and so all of the problems with all the troops are being placed upon them and so they're like you know how far did you make it into no man's land and that one guy the the one guy's like you know i made it to the i made it to the barbed wire and they're like wow you didn't make it past the barbed wire and he's like no one did i made it as far as the rest of my troop did (laughs) but but you know every all of their problems are being heaped onto these these three men
1: it's like why did why didn't you leave the trenches because yeah. my commander told me not to <laughs> yeah well you couldn't have gone on your own like yeah. and that was timothy kerry one was just like he's like where was where was your where were the rest of your 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 soldiers he's like oh they were all dead or had yeah. ran back oh okay and does like why didn't you why didn't you take why ain't you and the one guy that were left go take the the german trenches he's like because we couldn't <laughs> like yeah. but no yeah it's and it's and, and i love the the scene beforehand too again just talk about like the way kubrick sets everything up he has that scene before the trial where douglas is like telling them like what to do what to say and he's mm-hmm. like hey you're gonna be standing you're gonna be sta- the sun's gonna be facing you so don't try to like Lower, don't lower your head or anything just to keep the sun from out of your eyes like make sure you're looking mm-hmm. straight ahead answer this way do it this way and then the next scene you're seeing them kind of follow through with a couple cracks in the armor when like they're starting to break once they feel, realize kind of how almost corrupt this this system is and that's what Douglas is just like yeah where is this sonographer like let, mm-hmm. read the indictment where are they being charged with if they don't know what they're being charged with yeah. they don't know how yeah, to answer your to questions s- to yeah. skip
0: his his questioning yeah they don't let him call any witnesses a so, yeah
1: they bring no witnesses for the other side it's just very much you can just tell it's just it's a they're being set up in a way and like that the, the, these people who are there don't really care they're just like oh we're they should they're cowards they ran they're like yeah but everyone did it was a suicide mm-hmm. mission gentlemen of the court to find these men guilty
0: will be a crime to haunt each of you to the day you die. I can't believe that the noblest impulse of man is compassion for another can be completely dead here. Therefore, I humbly beg you, show mercy to these men.
1: the thing is he does a great job with introducing uh uh colonel dax who's douglas's character when uh moreau comes to him basically like hey we want you to do this mission and you get i think you get dax's view of war in this movie but also kubrick's kubrick's view of war when Mm -hmm. there's that debate of what patriotism is and and he quotes the, the guy basically quotes like what does he say It's the patriotism is
0: samuel johnson
1: yeah well no the Moreau says show me a patriot and i'll show you an honest
0: man and then he's mm. like
1: well samuel johnson would disagree and he's like how dare you what do you what does that mean and he's like <laughs> he goes i'm sorry i didn't mean it. he just he just said that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel and it's like yeah. that's his view and that's this kind of it's this brutality it's this kind of like
0: yeah yeah and it's it's a it's a very i mean he, dax has a very complicated viewpoint he is someone who he's not going to stop fighting the war no obviously someone who who believes in serving out his duty but he's also not going to buy in to all of this bureaucracy
1: (laughs) yeah and it's like he it's and he and you said he's beginning to see what is kind of behind it all and again kind of perfect scenes early on again set the tone of like when he meets moreau and He's like, Oh, let me show you like the best view or whatever to see the Germans trenches or whatever. And like Moreau's, there's is just so happy and just happy to be there. And you're watching men who are just like bandaged up from head to toe, limping, broken arms, just walking by covered in blood. And he's just so happy to be there. And you're like, yeah, the contrast, And that's the thing that Cooper, yeah. he does. He has these just great contrasting images just within a shot that mm-hmm. like almost is satire in a way of what is like being done <laughs> and it's it's so it's so good it's so good
0: but yeah and if we're if we're talking great scenes and we're talking dax as a leader you got to talk about the the attempt at the anthill oh man because that talk is about that. talking about making movies and you have to reference something else like sam i don't i don't I don't even know how many times sam mendez probably watched <laughs> Pat- the, the scene of of kirk douglas crossing no man's land yeah um uh, but then you also get from a storytelling point of view, he is the commander who is, he's the front of the charge the whole time. He's yeah. not slowing down. No. And he knows that this is an impossible mission.
1: And the only time he backs away is when he's going to find out why the other group hasn't done it yet. Yeah. It's like, yeah. why haven't you guys gone? And you're like, oh, we saw you guys get shots. So we decided to stay back. And you're like, <laughs> no, let's go. And then he's like, still, let's go. On that stops him is when he's climbing up, the, climbing up the ladder, a dead body falls on him. It's kind of like... Oh, this is kind of a sign. We should probably mm-hmm. not go forward. Um, but yeah, it's like the the battle sequence is just so Again, that was the scene where I'm watching this, I'm thinking, man, 2 years before he was shooting Killer's Kiss. Like mm-hmm. 2 years before this, he's shooting like a low budget boxing noir where he's like using a money money from a pharmacist and he's making this movie now. It's it's insane to see how fast he learned in such a short amount of time mm-hmm. about how to craft a movie. With well, the thing is, without knowing much about like filmmaking, you know, he knew like shots and and that, like. He didn't knew, he didn't know much about acting. He just knew what he kind of wanted is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it just took him a while to get it. Sometimes, uh, there was there's a story from Kirk that I was talking about uh him directing actors, um, when he was directing uh Adolf. Mignot who did who's playing the major general uh uh Brolard who's kind of the main mm-hmm. guy who's the the top boss essentially Douglas says he made them do a scene 17 times and Mignot says that was my best reading and he goes I think I can break for lunch now and it, cause it was well past the usual lunch time and Cooper said no no let's do one more take and <laughs> Mignot apparently went into an absolute fury in front of Douglas and the entire crew blasted off uh um complaining about kubrick being so young and didn't know what he was talking about and didn't have direct actors and he just went off and then after a while after he just stopped and kubrick goes very quietly goes all right let's try it one more time <laughs> <laughs> And just went back to let him let him get it out and then we're just like mm-hmm. cool let's go do it and does says stanley instinctively knew what to do talking about the dolly shots were just like the these long takes that he does the war stuff is one but then walking through the trenches that mm-hmm. great moment of Douglas walking to the trench before they go up the anthill where like they're just he's just walking through it and as you notice it slowly gets like smokier and smokier as he's getting closer to the beginning of where he's gonna go mm-hmm. and you're just like and the bombs are going off he's like, okay let's count it down 15 seconds and you're like he's aware they're walking into like a slaughter basically yeah and they and, he, and, and what and the thing is too talking about the mental management idea and kind of like the weird business side is that when they're talking about when he's when he's told what they're supposed to do by his his uh superior and he's like oh yeah, you only lose like about 65 percent of your men and he's like i'm gonna lose ha- over half of my men for this and he's just like yeah. well it's all part of it it's all part of it and then when douglas later on brings up like He's like, uh, like one third of them were, were, uh, were killed or whatever. But let's not talk talk fractions here. He's like, not. Let's not talk percentages. They should have done this. It's like it switches up the narrative when it benefits him, uh, his character. Um,
0: but yeah. Yeah. uh, And then you know, if we're doing scenes, got to do the the, just just the whole lead up to the execution, which is, just like gut-wrenching you know and and to see these these three different men and the the way they're all kind of handling it um and yeah it's this this huge i mean you know it's these this huge set of this whatever palace they're they're shooting at and all yeah. these people there i mean you really get the scope of, of this is when you go oh we got to give this man more money more like, money leads to to better returns
1: yeah when i sure. saw when i saw it there's a big shot of when you see the, the building when they're walking out i go oh barry linden this yeah, looks like yeah, barry linden yeah.
0: <laughs> then there's just that great shot of like when when they're getting ready to shoot and you're, you're kind of behind the firing troops and you're seeing these three the three men yeah. up on the stakes it's it's everything is so well uh composed here and uh, and the, i mean say what you will about timothy Carey's performance but it is it is really oh, I think yeah it's it's really it gets me you I know? It, yeah, I know it, I, it yeah. feels like it, it might be a weird way to react to your impending death but it feels authentic it does um yeah.
1: He, he was just weird to me in the courtroom thing where he was just kind of like I don't know or like he's just kind of <laughs> like, like he has just a weird smugness to him. But then yes, when he's about to die, when he knows he's about to die, it's very it's different.
0: Um, and you've I, got the, the, you've got this this little subplot of these two men who knew each other yeah. before the war and and don't really get along and they're, this their little like personal rivalry has turned into this moment and 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 you and Dax makes the other man lead the because he knows he, yeah. he knows that that's what's happening and so he, he makes the other man lead the firing squad yep and you can see the weight of all of his choices leading up to this point as, yeah. as he's leading the firing squad and yeah it's, it's so it's it is it is a really affecting scene and then to go from that into dax's finally confronting the major general and then to go to that into what I think is one of the greatest ending scenes of like movie, yeah. any movie. It is just so perfectly sums up this movie. And yeah. and you may have seen it, even if you haven't seen this movie, you may have seen this scene. But it's all, you know, all these soldiers because all the soldiers from this troop who who have all been, you know, they don't I don't even think they realize that they were almost all killed. Yeah. For, for what happened here. But they're just seeing this as like a break. You know, they Mm -hmm. got to come off the front lines for this for this execution. And they're at this bar and they're getting rowdy. And the the bar owner brings out this German refugee and has her start singing. And all these guys who I mean, were just catcalling and wolf whistling and just bouncing off the walls, just all start crying and humming along with her. And it is you know, there's been these little things throughout the movie that we we saw that kind of, that guy with shell shock and there's the the movie overall is obviously about the cost of war, but this that scene I think within a, a five minute scene just perfectly summarizes the the, the men of, of all ages are just devastated by what's been there and they're trying to act like they aren't, but they are.
1: Yeah, Ebert Ebert said that like if there's any type of answer to the Marseille song in casablanca when they're like it's the patriotism or whatever about Mm -hmm. like war and fighting for your country this is the this is the antithesis of it in a way where it's Mm -hmm. like oh this sucks it's because the song the the song is a german a german folk song about a soldier it's it's a soldier a young boy who's separated from the person he loves i think it's probably a soldier so right from percy's love and he returns to find her mortally ill and about to die and so the soldiers, when they hear her start singing that, they know what it means. They know the song, mm-hmm. and they know now this—it's like the the consequence of war to them appears, and that's when they start crying. Because mm-hmm. like, right when she starts, because because like, they're still leading up to the beginning of the song, they're still catcalling and and get, and they're making fun of her because of like she's not talent or the the guy the kind of MC is like making fun because she's not talented and she's. It's more how she looks is what matters. And then she mm-hmm. starts singing, crying as she's singing and everything just hits all of them. And that's the end of the, your movie. It's, it's yeah. really just incredible. And that's the person who's doing that is Kubrick's uh, third wife and final wife, uh, <laughs> Christiani, uh, um Christiani Harlan was her name. Now then became Christiane Kubrick still, still alive at 90 years old, by the way. Um, and she didn't really act that much after this movie, but she's amazing in that in that one mm-hmm. that one scene. And it is it is pretty much a it's a fantastic ending to the this type of movie that Kubrick is making about essentially the brutality of war and the hypocrisy of war. Um, and who yeah, at and, the end of the day who who
0: just who, kind of the the, the meaninglessness of yeah. it. You know, it's like it it is a it is a war movie in which we never see the opposite side because all of the villains are within. Yeah. Um and just this just this idea that you know the, the death is so meaningless in war anyway, why would you kill your own people? <laughs> yeah.
1: Cuz yeah, then there's that all other sub- subplot of of Moreau basically, like, "Yo, just bomb them all or just shoot yeah. at them because they're not moving forward." And it's kind of like and that's the the whole like twist of the end when when uh um the, the the major general brings it up it's like oh yeah like we're gonna we're gonna put you on trial too or whatever to prove we're gonna make sure that you you didn't do what they said they, they're saying you did blah, blah blah." but like as that kind of shows it's like why didn't you bring this forward before these three men were killed like if you brought mm-hmm. this forward earlier they wouldn't have been killed probably but you thought i was it was a it was a strategy to it. And you thought it was after like a promotion when I could give a shit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you, you, you know, you do get to see a little bit of that kind of the, the really dark ironic humor that is going to turn into Dr. Strangelove later. But that, that when they're sitting at lunch and they're like i thought the men died very well and they're like yes "Yes, you know sometimes these executions sometimes something can go wrong and it can really just bum out the troops but this one i really (laughs) think this one will be good for morale and it's just like absolute ridiculousness and it's it's right after the execution scene so you you don't laugh at it but there is this like tongue-in-cheek aspect to it that's just like this is insane
1: yeah and then real quick on the three men because you talk about timothy carey but Ralph Meeker, who plays Paris, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Who's who's the one that's like again that subplot of like seeing the person the, his superior throw a grenade and kill someone else, and that's why he's being covered up. Ralph Meeker, well, I think to bring it into context nowadays, Meeker, I think, was apparent or was apparently a big inspiration for DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Rick Dalton. Is oh, I heard Tarantino talk about how he would show him movies of like the mid sixties, late sixties of like of movies to watch and DiCaprio was watching them he was like who is that guy Mm
0: because I want to know
1: he's interesting and so basically they're kind of like he based his performance around Meeker who was always an actor who popped around for years but never really had like a big break was in films like Pads of Glory for one but also like Kiss Me Deadly, Dirty Dozen but just never had like a just a big pop uh Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the big inspiration for it. Um, yeah, and then, he's
0: great. He's great in this.
1: And then Joe Turkle, who plays mm-hmm. the the private the, the private who has been given marks of bravery for two other things, is now like, oh no, we picked you at random. You're a coward. Turkle actually just passed away a week ago from recording this at the age of, uh, ninety
0: four. Really?
1: Yeah, because I I I think people talked about I he hung out somewhere uh occasionally this is pre-covid where he, so you see go and talk to him he'll tell you stories about like working with kubrick basically um mm-hmm. i like at a bar some i don't know where it was but he was 94 and just passed away here in uh, here in santa monica uh on june 27th so yeah um but no all, all fantastic real thing on timothy carey real quick so timothy carey was fired from this movie while they were shooting it and they had to use a body double for certain scenes because he'd been fired. Uh, apparently, he was extremely difficult to w- work with. Uh, he actually faked his own kidnapping to hold up the film's production <laughs> is what it was. Um, so, yeah, that's why that, we're talking about difficult to work with. That was the reason why it was difficult to work with. Um, I I think it took Kubrick two weeks to set up the the big battle sequence is what it was with the props mm-hmm. and all the war zone stuff um they used 600 german police officers as extras for the film um he, for the he, he kubrick hired 5000 square yards of land from a local farmer for the sequence i'm sorry it took a month a month to film this assault from arranging props and tearing up the field like a war zone um so yeah it was a it was a big undertaking uh, and yeah, the same I mean, uh, it,
0: it, it you can tell it is a, yeah. it is an incredible set it's an incredible sequence it is it is enti- it is yeah it's it's one of the great I think I think World War two and, and you know we've we've obviously got 1917 recently so yeah it's a little bit fresher on the mind but but Gallipoli like the the trench warfare is such an interesting yeah. thing to explore uh, from a film standpoint because there's so much like standing in these little you know standing in these little rooms talking about what you're going to do and then you know strategizing and then it's like and then you just go and you know that's what that's there's there's a reason a lot of these movies involve running you know yeah because then you're just like all right we have to go through no man's land and most of us are going to die it was such a horrible way to go about war i mean any way to go about warfare is terrible yeah. but that particularly was such a horrible way to go about warfare but it's so it it, it does make it very cinematic
1: and the tear and because the tear gas is also a big thing in world war one correctly that, i feel like it was that was that where it's like they realized just how bad it was like we should stop using tear gas on uh mm-hmm. our enemies uh because world war one it was it was so it was just such a dirty war like in terms of just like the way the trench warfare was just so stagnant, essentially. Yeah, it was World mm-hmm. War One where they used so much uh, tear gas, and then they basically were like, "We should stop doing that because <laughs> it's it's almost <laughs> too horrific for war." Um, but yeah, it's it's it really is just a it's a it's a fascinating film, and just at 27, 28, how old he is, these he's making this it's kind of insane. Uh, so mm-hmm. my question to you is, can you guess? How many countries this movie was banned in?
0: Banned in? Yeah. Um, France? It was
1: banned in France. It was not shown oh, okay. until 1975 in France.
0: Well, they weren't fans of the way they were portrayed. No, or. they were not. Uh, uh, Germany?
1: It was banned in Germany for two years. Uh, it was supposed to play at Berlin Film Festival, but they Berlin pulled it so it would not uh, upset France and it was not shown until two years after U S release.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really just, this was a time in which like you just weren't anti-war like that. Yeah. wasn't a thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was banned in Spain. It okay. was not shown until 1986 in Spain. Uh, it was banned in Switzerland. It was not shown in Switzerland until 1970. Uh, It was banned in all U.S. military establishments. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, The film, however, would be kind of the first success financially of Kubrick's career. It would make a little little over a million dollars off its $900,000 budget. Uh, It would receive... uh, It won the Grand Prix at the Belgian Film Critics Association, and it was nominated for uh best screenplay at the Ryers guild of america uh that year uh, who, i don't know who it lost to though i'm gonna try to see who it lost to or 12 i mean, 12 angry men is the one it lost to i believe is what it is so i understand that um it's a tough one uh but yeah, it was his first big hit and essentially douglas would make would, would create a deal with kubrick and harris for a three-picture deal uh, through his production company, because he liked the final outcome of the movie so much. Um, and it was essentially, I think, be uh, a big turning point in Kubrick's career where people were like, Oh, we should take a look at this guy. And yeah, he was seen absolutely. as now this big Hollywood, a possible big Hollywood director. Um, and again, it sets up kind of the next outcome. And it, it basically, it, this movie leads Kubrick to get everything he wants as a director and I, <laughs> I assume it's a good thing to say next week we'll find out how sometimes you shouldn't always get what you want <laughs> uh so that is next week because next week we were talking about uh, actually not, not, not jump ahead of that far um before we talk about what's happening next week Thomas like what do you think is being established in this period of filmmaking for Kubrick and that could be visually thematically tropes what's what's what are you starting to see here
0: i mean like i like i said visually it's very clear that he is he wants to push the envelope he's not someone who is going to shoot things the way hollywood studio films are shot at the time um something that we we do start to see kind of throughout that that is the the really harsh lighting which i think defines a lot of his black and white photography he didn't Mm -hmm. Stick with that. You know, I, I wouldn't say that that his his later color stuff is is kind of lit in that same fashion, but he really liked that like really high contrast, even more contrast, I would say, than than the German expressionism types of stuff. Like his yeah. his white lights are, are really white. Yeah. Um and we start to see that kind of movement, that that the those those crazy dolly shots. He's obviously someone who is thinking. Like I, I want the camera to go where I want it to go and we're going to figure it out, which is, you know, in the future going to lead to the invention of Steadicam. Yeah. Um, But he's, he's obviously someone who has this vision in his brain, like you said, whether or not it's from the day of (laughs) or, or something that he plans out ahead of time, but he is going to figure out how to get the camera there. And I think that is, is what is really going to set him apart from the people of his, of his his contemporaries as a twenty seven year old, but then also kind of paved the way for the people who would kind of come up underneath him, and and start to just really be able to shoot things the way the way that they wanted to. Yeah. As far as themes go, I I do think you know his 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 earlier two films aren't don't quite have as much of his his kind of worldview. Yeah. But but you do see in, in Paths of Glory, you do start to see this this kind of like anti anti-bureaucracy anti-establishment uh th- these things that are going to show up time and time again are just like the 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 people who are in charge don't know what they're doing yeah. and and he's 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 played that for comedy in movies he's played that for for tragedy in movies but it's, there's always this kind of like distrust of authority uh throughout even if you're just talking about the the rich people who are running a the sex cult in in Eyes Wide Shut. Um, <laughs> there's just always this kind of like be be suspicious of who's at the top, and, yeah. and I think Paths of Glory is what really sets him sets him down that way. Because e- even in you know there there are these heist movies that are kind of like we're taking it from people who deserve it, and and yeah. that's that's not even really brought up in the killing. They don't they don't really no. talk about who runs the racetrack or anything no. like that.
1: That's a good point. It's uh, Path of Glory is really kind of the like because for some that was probably seen as like the debut for kubrick in a way because that was yeah. the person that really kind of played to a major audience uh killing and killer's kiss came got bigger later on um mm-hmm. so you could probably like, who is this person and again like i said it's it's also you're looking at the middle of the fit or the tail end of the 50s and like this just cynicism that's you are talking about the bureaucracy of it all but the cynicism of society in a way to it in 57 it feels ahead of its time
0: <laughs> to mm-hmm. be
1: this cynical in 57 in a way like for especially for a war film but like i i you almost feel like cynicism so that doesn't come fully into it or in some people's mind that kind of cynical nature doesn't come into play until the 60s basically and here right. he is doing it much earlier uh with pads of glory um yeah exactly so yeah and I also would argue I know it's more in this one in Pa way this time also the score the musical the musical stuff and the sound mm-hmm. he's playing with like the kind of classical vibe in moments feels very much like what he'll do in a lot of his films after this movie yep. um it's For all sure. very much there uh, mm-hmm. but this is probably the last kind of section where like all of his movies are like almost under ninety minutes <laughs> yep so we're going to be so nice forward to, to ease them. in right? yeah.
0: not getting used to that. Yep.
1: Yeah. The, the rest of these are going to be like two, two and a half, three hours long. Just to, just to prep you next week for when you're starting to watch movies that we're going to be covering. So next week we're going to be talking about Spartacus Lolita and Dr. Strange love. And as I said, right leading into Spartacus, he has made a deal with Kirk Douglas to, to basically have a partnership with their production company. Uh, and so that's coming into the next week. And then Lolita, his kind of adaptation of the controversial novel. And then Dr. Strangelove, which is seen by many as one of his, probably one of the more popular films of his filmography. But that is next week. Mm-hmm. Um, that is all we have for you on this week, part one of our Stanley Kubrick series. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever your podcast and if you haven't already make sure you write us a review for the show on on your preferred podcast platform you know
0: we, we've, <laughs> i can't even do it. i was gonna say something about like injustice and what an injustice <laughs> it would be to not review this this podcast but like that feels wrong that felt bad very, yeah yeah very fresh on *Pass of glory last night and i'm feeling i'm really feeling it that I, i've seen that movie multiple times but man yeah. it hit me this time for sure yeah um yeah you know so write your senators but also you know leave us a (laughs) leave us a comment about how much you enjoy the show
1: yeah yeah senators first that that needs to be more detailed and then you can just give us like a thumbs up five stars on our reviews so be do you but we appreciate it uh and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok thomas as always thank you for joining me
0: thank you for having
1: me and thank you all for listening hope you listen to more episodes soon bye